right. Welcome to another episode of Dose of Dividends. I'm your host, Dr. Dividend. And today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Value Stock Geek. Value Stock Geek, what's going on, man? Hey, nothing much. Nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you too. Thank you for taking the time. So Value Stock Geek is a value investor, prides himself on research, and I'm a huge fan of his due diligence and company write-ups. So I'd like to ask, how did you get started with investing? I first got interested in investing during the internet bubble in the late 90s. And I would do things like I had some money that I made mowing lawns. My dad helped me set up a brokerage account and I would buy internet stocks. The big stock I was into at the time was Cisco Systems. Then I graduated high school in the year 2000, which was the peak of the internet bubble. And then a family friend recommended The Intelligent Investor. And from then on, I was pretty much convinced of the religion of value investing. And uh, I fooled around with the markets a lot over the years. By 2012, I, I had enough money saved up where I could start to invest more seriously. So that's when I really started to take it more seriously, do a lot more research. And that's really, um, I've been growing from there. Oh, awesome. So I'm sure you're not the only one who was caught up in Cisco and the internet bubble of the 2000s. What was it like kind of recovering from seeing a major drop in your portfolio that early in your investing career? Well, I didn't experience much of a drop. So fortunately, I read the intelligent investor around the peak of the bubble, like around okay. May, June of 2000. And then I sold out after I read Ben Graham and from then on, I, and then after that, value really started to work. And between the logic of it, I've been seeing the way that things panned out. From that point, I was I was a convert. I believed in value investing from then on. Yeah, and I haven't gotten around to reading that book, but that's totally on my list. And just hearing the way Warren Buffett operates and the lessons he's taken from Ben Graham, that's one on my list for sure. And I'm glad it found you at the right time. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a slog to get through. I wouldn't recommend it to brand new investors. They, it's, mm -hmm. A lot of it is honestly pretty boring, but it, there's a lot of great concepts in there. Um, chapter on margin of safety is, is really important. Um, that, that's something I want to increase in my own investing, just kind of having a more grasp of margin of safety. And I find it so funny that anytime anyone brings up the intelligent investor, they're like, it's dense. It's it's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> now, the one that's worse than that is security analysis, which I've also read, which is uh, that is a hard slog to get through. Both of them are almost like you're taking a course. It's not really something you're reading for pleasure. <laughs> um, I would recommend to a new investor, I would I would recommend a probably a better intro to value investing would be something like The Little Book That Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt where that's written in a much more accessible way. There's jokes in there. It's funny. It's actually enjoyable to read. You could get through it in like four hours on a oh, Saturday afternoon or something. So I would say start there if you want to get introduced to value investing well, rather than uh, sit down and go through the long process of dealing with the intelligent investor and security analysis. Yeah. Well, thank you for the recommendations. So we know the science behind value investing. And I've been reading some of your stuff on Twitter, and I noticed that you posted about Taiwan Semiconductor. For those listeners that don't know, Taiwan Semiconductor operates in Taiwan, but they are spreading out a little bit, and they have plans to come to America, and they make advanced semiconductor chips. 
a lot of turmoil. Taiwan Semiconductor always in the middle of geopolitical conflict. Why take a look at Taiwan Semiconductor now? Well, I've I've looked at it for a long time. I've been interested in it a long time. I um, I've always known it was an awesome company, but it was never quite cheap enough where it would get my attention. And uh, recently, I've been looking at it, and I noticed, wow, this is down to ten times an enterprise multiple. So that's extremely cheap for a company of that quality. And then when I looked through the reasons for why it's cheap, and I thought through, well, why is this down so much? And it's basically macro concerns that have nothing to do with the actual execution of the company, where it's all, we're worried about a recession. We're worried about these geopolitical tensions with China. None of it is Taiwan Semiconductor sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, that's the perfect kind of setup. You get this massive margin of safety. It's down for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual performance of the company. It's the kind of company where they have a long, long track record of delivering results. They have a pretty formidable moat. They have entrenched relationships with a lot of chip designers. So to me, it's a perfect setup. It's the exact kind of thing I'm looking for. I really admire that you can separate the business from these macro concerns. I'm sure I didn't dive in as deep as you would looking at Taiwan Semiconductor, but after just looking at it and worrying about the attention of China and a possible invasion and maybe a softening in demand of chip products, I do own Taiwan Semiconductor through an ETF, but not outright, but maybe it's time to take a look at it. And I, uh, I'm i interested and I really admire that you can separate the geopolitical and like macro concerns versus what's going on internally in the business. And it's, I think it's difficult for newer investors to do that because I even find uh, some difficulty with that. So I think I really do admire that. Anything else that you notice really about Taiwan Semi that you think gives it a, a leg up versus maybe other chip makers? Well, they're at the forefront technologically. They're coming out with a three nanometer chip, which is leagues ahead of any of the competition. So it would really take a lot for their competitive position to be unraveled at this point for someone. I mean, what would need to happen for Taiwan Semiconductor to lose their competitive position would be one of the competitors would need to come along, technologically outpace them, and then dig into all of their existing relationships. And when you think through what would it take to get there, that, that's a 10-year project. So I'm I'm not too concerned about that. So I think when you have that kind of setup, it's it's time to buy. The macro concerns are certainly troubling, but my position on macro is basically if you don't like the current macro environment, wait 24 months and it'll right. be something totally different. <laughs> yeah, the, the news cycle, the macro is just changing every day. So yeah. So I, I have recently listened to a really good podcast by the uh, website, The Generalist. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but they do some really good write-ups on tech and artificial intelligence and crypto. But they did a really good one on Taiwan Semiconductor and just the technology that's needed to make chips. It just seems like it's an impossible task. And for a company to have figured it out, it's very powerful. And they're likely like years ahead of anybody else because of all the supply chain components that go into it and the technology that's required to make these chips so advanced. I own a position in advanced semiconductor machine lithography, which listeners, you may know as ASML. And Taiwan Semiconductor is one of their biggest customers. And just the process is going into building these chips and these semiconductors is just unbelievable. 
So anything else more on uh, Taiwan Semi before we move on? Uh, I think I pretty much outlined my position. Uh, thanks for the information on uh, that blog and, and uh, ASML. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, super interesting stuff. I did a write-up on ASML you guys could find on my newsletter if you're interested. And I'm just more and more interested in semiconductors because they're in all, a lot of the things that we need. And I, I see demand continuing to grow the more techie we get as a society, but remains to be seen. Another one of your tweets that I really enjoyed is your write-up on how different asset classes fared in 2022. So just to, some of the highlights, commodities were up 19.34%. Gold was down about seven tenths of a percent. Short-term treasuries about five and a half percent down. And um, your weird portfolio it was down 17.6% versus all US stocks being down about 19 and a half percent. Can you speak a little bit to your weird portfolio? Yeah. So that basically was a way that I was looking for a vehicle for my for my savings. Over the years, originally, I was trying to do a stock strategy for all of my savings. And obviously, I ran into a lot of issues there. So what I wanted was some type of passive portfolio where I could pile my savings into it. And it had to meet a few objectives. Number one, I didn't want to have to predict macroeconomic considerations. I didn't want to have to pick stocks. I wanted something where I could really see a return within five years. It's not going to have lost decades or that type of thing. And that's it. I just wanted something I could mechanically pile my money into. So out of all of that work, I uh, did a lot of research into different asset allocation strategies. The one that resonated with me most was Harry Brown's Permanent Portfolio. There's a great book by a guy named Craig Rowland that I would recommend, The Permanent Portfolio. And The Permanent Portfolio is a way of accomplishing that goal. So Harry Brown basically had four asset classes for four economic environments. One of them is stocks, which you would have during a period of prosperity. The other one would be long-term treasuries, which would do well in a period of like a deflationary recession, like 2008 or the early 1930s. The Fed is cutting interest rates. Prices are going down. Mm -hmm. The other one would be gold, which should theoretically benefit from inflation. And then the other one would be cash, which is there for what's called a hard money recession, which is really for what we've had in the last year, yeah. where interest rates go up a lot. It hurts all assets. But because interest rates are going up, your cash should be yielding a decent return. Kind of that, safe, that safe part to jump to for the short term, because everybody's kind of worried about the macro outlook and other asset classes going down. So yeah, I can see that. That's one thing I've worked on was building a little bit more of a cash position. Yeah. So so Harry Brown, he had this four asset classes. And the idea was you rebalance them once a year. So when one is up, you would sell that. You'd buy the one that's down. And then basically you could get a reliable rate of return over a long period of time without a lot of stress. So I liked that idea a lot. And then basically I took that concept of multiple economic environments and trying to use diversification to achieve a more reliable rate of return to develop my own approach, which is more aggressive. So there's less cash, which also makes it riskier. I wanted a tilt towards value. So there's a tilt for all the equity. There's a tilt towards small cap value. I wanted it internationally diversified. So I took those same concepts and basically what I came up with was an equally weighted portfolio 
of U.S. small cap value, international small caps, long-term treasuries, gold, and REITs, where you have those five asset classes equally weighted, held in ETFs. And uh, I use that as my as my primary approach. And uh, I've stuck with it. It's been good to me. It's really helped me out, particularly during COVID, when I had um, my own opinions about where the macro environment was going to go, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> and, so hard uh, to predict. <laughs> yeah. So for the money I had in that weird portfolio, it did its job. I, I lost probably 13% in the depths of COVID. I stuck to the formula and the formula worked and did its job. And that's what I use as the primary vehicle for my for my investing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And I think that during that spike down, I think it reached about down 33%. So to be down only 13% and a lot more comfortable see like living through that is really powerful. I uh, actually found you on Twitter through the weird portfolio and I read your whole Medium blog in one day and I was just so enthralled in it. Like, I think it's a genius portfolio. I think that it sets yourself up to not have country bias because you're diversifying internationally with the small caps and with the REITs. And you also have small caps that have performed very well, the small cap value on both sides and real estate as kind of like another offensive asset class and treasuries to help you out when things go south and gold when investors flock to in times of uncertainty. So I think you just kind of set yourself up really well using the weird portfolio for just any economic environment. And it's fared well this past year compared to US stocks. And I think when you back tested it, I remember I think it was 7.7% average annual return. Is that right? Yeah, and that's real return. So mm -hmm. that's after inflation. So the nominal return is is over ten percent, and that's taken back for the seventies. I also took it back a little bit further than that, back into the nineteen thirties, and I looked at what it would have done during the depression, for instance. And during the nineteen twenty nine to thirty two period, I I figured it would lose about fifty percent of its value. That seems acceptable when. We're in a depression and stocks are down 80 to 90 percent. Yeah, um, certainly. So to have the consistent returns and have less of a drawdown that you have to worry about compared to like the boom and bust of large cap stocks, I think that's super powerful in addition to any of the large cap stocks. And I think I'm like you in this regard where you have your safe portfolio that you um, just abide to by the rules and then you have your active portfolio, which you also have rules for, but it gives you some time to scratch the itch of wanting to pick stocks and doing your own DD. Is that fair to say you do the same thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's nice to have that portfolio where I can, I'm going to put this aside. I am not going to really interfere with it. I'm not going to adjust any of these allocations. Mm -hmm. And then I also have my portfolio where I can pursue this interest of mine where I love researching companies. I love trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And I'd say that's that's pretty good for most people. I think a lot of people are always asking, well, what do I do? Do I pick stocks? Do I index? Well, you can do both. You can, exactly. uh, you can, you don't have to be all or nothing. You can, you know, choose two approaches and uh, it, it should, it should help you in both regards. I think that the active portfolio helps you scratch the itch and it prevents yeah. you from doing dumb things with your with your more passive money. <laughs> and then the passive money, you know that that's there and you don't do as many um, stupid things with your active portfolio. 
Exactly. And yeah, like you said, investors shouldn't limit themselves just based on what they like most. Like uh, me personally, I like dividend paying stocks the most, but it's not going to stop me from owning a small cap that I think has some growth. We just have to, in our own minds and our own investing, decide how much of our portfolios we want to allocate to different asset classes and just stick with your rules and change your rules if necessary or the your portfolio as necessary. But yeah, I mean, don't, there's no reason to limit yourself. So definitely powerful stuff. What kind of scenarios do you see going forward for 2023 for stocks and bonds and gold? Because 2022 is the worst year for stocks and bonds combined. And I think it was about 80 years. So what do you see going forward this year? Yeah, 2022. So there's basically with all these asset allocation approaches, whether you look at like All Seasons or Harry Brown's permanent portfolio or my weird portfolio, there's really three core asset classes that are always in there. You've got stocks, you've got treasuries, and you've got gold. That's pretty much a staple of all these portfolios. And it was a weird year where they were all down at the same time. So the last time that happened was probably the early 1980s. And it's... um, it's what I was talking about earlier. It, it's a hard money recession where really the only thing that's going to do well is cash. That's the only really reliable thing that's going to do well in that type of environment. I would say those environments historically don't last that long. They last basically 12 to 24 months. That's basically what happened in the um, early 1980s where Back then, what happened was Volcker raised interest rates. He caused a terrible recession, and but we broke the back of inflation. And after that, other asset classes took off. So what's next? I mean, I could see a lot of things happening. You could have a situation where Fed gets inflation under control, start to see inflation come down. We somehow avoid a really serious recession. And I'd say in that environment, stocks are going to do really well. I could see an environment where say the Fed just keeps hiking and eventually breaks the economy and we have this horrible recession. And then what they're going to have to do in that situation is go back to zero interest rates, quantitative easing and everything else. Well, in that environment, treasuries will do awesome. Or it might not work at all. And we have basically like a stagflationary kind of environment where growth is bad and inflation is terrible and, and the Fed has completely failed. In that situation, I think gold should do okay. Or, you know, you could have another year of this hard money thing where you have cash doing well. But I think that this unique situation where all three are down at the same time, that's not going to last forever. Do you have any decades that you would draw parallels to? Would you say that the 80s or 70s would be like the closest parallel you could draw to the environment we're in today? Really hard to say. That's a really hard game to play when you start drawing these historical comparisons because uh, none of them are ever exactly the same. No, for sure. But yeah, I I think that it's pretty similar to, I'd say we're in a similar, inflation isn't as high as it was in the early 1980s. Inflation is more of where it was in like the early 1970s. So the question is, will the Fed repeat the same mistakes that it made in the early 1970s. Will they basically in the early 1970s, you had inflation. It was below 10%. It wasn't above 10% yet. We went into the 73, 74 recession. They thought inflation was over. They eased more and then they just caused a bigger problem down the line. So the question is like, I'd say it's probably a lot like the early 1970s, but the question is, 
what are they going to do this time? Are they going to repeat the mistakes of the past or are they going to pump the brakes as hard as they can and keep this from getting out of control? I would say based on what Powell's been doing, it sounds like he, it seems like he is willing to pull out all the stops to make sure he doesn't repeat the mistakes of the early 1970s. So we'll see. Yeah. And to see if you've ever seen that graph plotted of the speed that the Fed's hiking rates, this is the fastest speed, I believe, ever. So that's something for me to watch. And I'm I'm a little surprised that gold didn't perform better this year, given like the scares of inflation and the uncertainties of macroeconomics. But we'll see what happens next year. And trying to guess the macro is a dangerous game that I don't think I can win. <laughs> so just kind of have to stick to I, for me, I'll stick to stocks that have survived recessions and have like demonstrated they can distribute cash flow to investors so I can reinvest it and buy shares at a lower rate if stocks do take a nosedive right now or just worry about getting that cash flow in, just trying to stay afloat. I agree. I can completely relate to all that. <laughs> <laughs> so like you said, you've been investing for about a little over 20 years do you have a mistake that you can remember making that you really learned from and won't do again? Yes, trying to time the market in 2020. And that was definitely a huge mistake of mine. I um I actually timed the market pretty well in the um, 2007 to 2009 period. Like I called the top and then I called the bottom. And that was one of the worst things that ever happened to me because I was convinced I had the ability to do that consistently. And then in 20. So all through the 2010s, I figured, okay, a bubble is brewing. Eventually, it's going to burst. And then in 2020, I thought, this is it. Bubbles bursting during COVID. We're going to have a depression. All of these macro valuation metrics like the Buffett market cap to GDP, the Schiller P, all that's going to go back down to a normal level. And I was just completely wrong about all of it. And then that finally, now I was already kind of moving in a direction where you can't predict macro, which is why I had the weird portfolio at that point. And I'm lucky I had it. And uh, I really thought that I've got this, this is, a, this is the end of it. And I was 100% wrong. And at the end of it, when the dust settled, I was just thankful I had the weird portfolio and I had most of my money in there and I didn't alter any of those allocations. And then... From there, I decided, you know what, I am no, I am never going to try to predict this again. I am going to, um, even with my uh, active portfolio, I'm going to stay disciplined and I'm not going to try to predict economic cycles ever again. Yeah, that could be a dangerous thing when like, you're successful at first, because when I first kind of came into it, I was messing around in day trading and I would hit a few and I would just be like, oh, this is easy money. And then when you uh, get the other side of the coin, when you lose a huge percentage of your position in one day trying to make a risky trade and you start to realize like, you know, you can't predict it, you know? So I think that's really powerful stuff. Like, I think that's amazing that you called the, the 2007 great financial crisis. But do you find that with like the quantitative easing and like the zero interest rate environment, do you think that kind of throws off looking back to the history of the stock market the past like 100 years I feel like economic cycles are quicker and we kind of just like could get bailed out by zero interest rates and money printing. Do you think that kind of throws off perspective of looking back at other markets and maybe like strategies that worked before don't work now? I don't think so. I mean, I think the Fed has been around since 1913 and they were basically created to bail out the market when times get tough. 
In the uh, panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan bailed out the market. They realized, okay, J.P. Morgan isn't going to be around forever. We need an institution that can do it. So we set up an institution to bail out the market. And then everyone is always surprised when it bails out the market, when, we, <laughs> when it goes down. It's pretty much what they've done the whole time. So I don't think much has changed with the Fed. I think the main thing that they've had trouble adapting to is... Um, the low inflation rates that we've had over over the last 20 years, where that's been, I think, a weird situation that threw people off. But I don't think quantitative easing is totally new. It's been done in Japan for 30 years at this point, where Japan has been trying in vain to try to prop up their market, and that didn't work. But the policy has at least been out there. But I think in the United States, you have a different set of circumstances. You have more favorable demographics. You have a higher rate of growth. You have a more diversified economy. So I really think what, based on what we know, when you look back at the history of the Fed, I don't think a lot has changed. I think basically what's going to happen over the long run is you're going to have a rate of inflation that will slowly erode the dollar. That's been true for 100 years. It's probably going to be true for 100 years from now. And you have a demographic situation where through immigration, we can continue to grow our pool of people and our human capital. And I'd say the macro environment over the long term is nominal GDP will increase. And over the very long haul, you should start to you should see that help equities. So I see very little evidence to indicate that the next 100 years for equity markets is going to be fundamentally different than the last hundred years. I think returns will probably be lower. They won't be as exceptional as they were, but I think that fundamental principle where the economy will grow and stocks will increase with them, I think that ought to be in place. Very well said. Thank you. So after learning to not time the market, would that be a piece of advice you would give investors? Or do you have another piece of advice you would give investors that are looking to start investing today? Yeah, don't time the market's pretty important. I'd say that's pretty critical. The other thing is just don't gamble. I, if I didn't read The Intelligent Investor when I did, I was very fortunate that I read it when I did. I would have blown up probably with the stuff I was doing with tech stocks at that point. So I'd say don't gamble is super important. Now, I was lucky back then where I kept trying to get, a, when I was young, I kept trying to get approval for like options trading, margin, and the brokers wouldn't give it to me. Thank God they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say those are the big things you want to avoid. Avoid obvious gambling, things like where you're speculating on options trades and you're using margin, things like that. A lot of the success in investing is just don't blow up. You know, you can't compound from zero. So avoid things where you could potentially have um, a permanent loss of, of capital. And then I'd say the other thing to focus on would be um, make sure that you're focused more on consistently investing. I'd say that's more important than your specific strategy or your specific asset allocation strategy, where when you're looking at small amounts of money, it's not as important what's your ratio between stocks and bonds and that type of thing. Like when I started investing, I had maybe, so say I, I, I had a portfolio with $3,000 in it. I was obsessed over the, the allocations and the stocks it was in, but at the end of the day, it's 3,000 bucks. I can relate. Like, <laughs> like it, I'd say what's more important at that stage of the game is saving and getting that to, to a bigger pool of money. 
and just find just finding different ways to grow your income too i would say is important i really love how you said you can't compound from zero like really just important to protect your principal at all costs and have a plan for if things go south very well said do you have a certain valuation metric that you have to use for every stock before you enter or add to a position I'd say the most useful one is enterprise value to uh, EBIT. So, and a lot of that comes from uh, Joel Greenblatt and Tobias Carlyle. So Tobias Carlyle wrote a great book about really that that valuation metric, which is the acquirer's multiple, where he uses more of like enterprise value to operating income. He really explains why that's the one of the key metrics that you should use. When I look at a stock, I look at all of them. I look at a lot of different metrics. One of the things I do a lot is look at long-term trending and in valuation multiples. Like I'll look at 20 years worth of the EBIT, 20 years worth of price to sales and see where does this thing normally trade? Where is it today? And then try to get it at a discount to that. But I'd say that enterprise valuation is the most critical because if you were to actually go out and buy a business in the real world, that would be the key metric that you're looking at. You're saying like, what income will I derive as an operator? And what is the total amount that I'm paying for that business, which is not simply the market capitalization of the company, you're going to be responsible for the debt in addition to that. So I think that's the purest way to to look at, at evaluation. That's huge, like being responsible for the debt too, because you're buying the company, you're buying everything that comes with it. Can you speak just a little bit more on exactly what EV to EBIT is? Yeah, so EBIT is um, is basically your operating income. It's you know it's earnings before um, interest and taxes, and a good proxy for that is is basically your operating profit, where you're, you're taking the closer you're getting closer to the top of the income statement, so you're getting a pure measure of here's what I am collecting, and then what you're looking at from the EV perspective is you're basically looking at if I were to acquire this entire business, if I were to go out into the private market and buy this business, I would have to pay for the market capitalization. I would have to theoretically pay off all of the debt. I would have this cash. So you so you add market capitalization, you add total debt, you subtract the cash saying, I will be able to basically take this cash and do whatever I want to do with it. And then you're also going to add up any uh, minority interests that are out there where that's another piece of the puzzle that you might be looking at. And that basically gives you a pure method of valuation than say like a PE ratio, where the PE ratio is just taking your earnings per share, which is way at the bottom of the income statement. And then you're dividing it by price per share. And that can be deceptive because you could have a situation, for instance, where your PE might be low, but the company might be using an overwhelming amount of debt. So it's not giving you a really true picture of what the true value of the company is. And then EPS, once you get that low on the income statement, there's a lot of shenanigans that you can pull to manipulate those EPS numbers. So I say that exactly. Yeah. Like you just said with the shenanigans, like there's so many different accounting levers you can pull to make the earnings say what you want it to say. And I think you have to go a little bit deeper than price to earnings when you're looking at valuation. I do look at it just for a quick snapshot and I kind of look at five-year PE just to see where this thing kind of hovers around. But going a little bit deeper with the EV to EBIT, I really do like that idea of valuation. Yeah, it's like, uh, like and Tobias Carlyle, I, he described it once as a weapons-grade PE ratio. I, I like that that method. 
And yeah, he has two really good books on it. The Acquirer's Multiple. That's that's a very quick read. It's a lot like the little book that beats the market. And then uh, there's another great book about it called Deep Value that I would recommend. I'm loving the book recommendations. That was one thing I was not ready for, but I'm very thankful for. <laughs> Last kind of question to keep it fun. I noticed that on Twitter, you post a lot about some good, t- well, in my opinion, good TV shows because we share the same ones, but things like Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, two of my favorite TV shows. Is one of those like your favorite TV show? Do you have any other ones you really like or recommend? Breaking Bad is hard to beat. I think that's the best TV show ever made. Uh, Every time I sit down and watch that show, I'm like, I'm amazed at just how well it's done, like across the board. Like it was just a confluence of everything is perfect about it from the writing to the acting, to the direction, to the story. It also has a satisfying ending. Usually when you come across a TV show, it might check like two of those boxes, but to have everything just perfectly come together, that's pretty, pretty unprecedented. So I'd say Breaking Bad is probably the best one that's ever been made. That's that's the goat. <laughs> so and then when I, Better yeah, Call Saul is great too. Oh, uh, I know I just finished Better Call Saul and I was a huge fan of it. I actually really like when when shows use black and white and seeing like the flashbacks with Saul and black and white were sweet. I think super underrated too. Like I've never seen another TV show do this, how good the camera work is. Like they'll have just some sick angles, like when Mike's riding in the car and it's like his head, like perfectly in frame, you just see it like bouncing around and like in silence or like when in uh better call Saul when he's checking out the car and just like, you're watching a guy take apart a car for 10 minutes and it doesn't even feel boring. Like, how do they do it? I think I think it's amazing. Um, Breaking Bad would be in my top two. I, I it, it goes between that and The Sopranos. I just watched The Sopranos for the first time too, and I'm a fan of mob movies and TV shows. So those two like are one in one in one A for me. All right, to close out, just want to say thank you for taking the time for sitting down with me. How can people find you? Best place is Twitter. My handle is at Value Stock Geek on Twitter. Um, and then I would say the other spot to check things out would be uh, my Substack, which is valuestockgeek.substack.com, where I regularly analyze companies and, and write them up. All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down. Find him on Twitter. Find his Substack. Well worth the read. I would definitely recommend The Weird Portfolio. I think that was eye-opening for me as an investor, and I think you listeners would benefit from it. Value Stock Geek, thank you so much. I'll see you out on the Twitterverse and happy 2023 of investing. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. This was awesome.